Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. My guest for this episode is Jeffrey Camp, an oil industry veteran, expert on digital technology, and author of the new book, Carbon, Capital, and the Cloud, a playbook for digital oil and gas. So welcome to the interview, Jeff. Thank you very much. Now, I have to tell you, I, I'm really excited about this book. And one of the reasons is because you are, a, you know, you've worked in the oil industry for, for decades. You're, you do a lot of consulting around digital technologies and how they're transforming, how to transform uh, business operations in oil and gas, that sort of thing. But you also acknowledge that the energy transition is a major force affecting the industry. And early in the book, you quote Dr. John Pillay, uh, who's uh, with engineering firm, firm Worley, and I'll just read it out here. There are two mega trends that are affecting our industry. One is energy transition. The other is digital. Everything that we do from a change point of view connects to those two strategic drives. Why, what led you to include the energy transition in your view of where the oil and gas industry is going? Well, well, the reason is that the energy transition uh, drive is a global phenomenon. It's not a, it's not a national phenomenon. We are experiencing it differently depending on what country you're in, but in Europe in particular, the uh, uh, national economies, the EU in general has been very definitive and clear that they are mandating the transition across the continent. And the, the subtle effect of that is anyone who sells to the continent is going to be required to demonstrate that they are compliant with EU laws and regulations in the same way that if you use the US banking system, you have to demonstrate you're compliant with US banking rules. So it'll be the same thing. Europeans will say, you want to sell that over here? You uh, you need to demonstrate to us that what you're selling is not violating our laws. The, the, the subtext of that is they're not going to allow their European manufacturers to export their, quote, dirty industries, unquote, to offshore, offshore places because we all share the same air at the end of the day. We share the same planet. So the, the, this is unavoidable from my perspective. And then once we have large economies like uh, China, Japan, Singapore, um, Korea, all signing up to say we're going, to, we're going down this pathway, uh, we're all on notice that we're going to have to change. And that's a reason why I, I put that into the book. It is a major strategic, systemic, structural shift the industry is going to have to go through. Well, with that as background, please give us just a, a brief overview of the argument that you lay out in the book. Well, it starts with the actual title, uh, Carbon Capital in the Cloud. So carbon is reference to decarbonization, but also energy diversification, two major shifts, and they're different. Uh, energy diversification means we're going to invest in alternative types of energy rather than continuing to fund our growth of our, our economies with, with the traditional uh, energy products. 
And uh, decarbonization means we're going to throttle out of the economy where we can the use of fossil fuels where, it, where, where it's possible. So these, these two forces are, are capping our growth and then going to bend the, the, the demand curve down. That's ca carbon. Capital is twofold. It is people and money, human talent and money, because you need those two things for this industry. And the capital industry, dollar capital industry, no longer wants to fund this industry. Like capital is running to the exits. Uh, at the same time, young people don't want to work in this industry because they're being told quite clearly price signals from both governments, uh, education institutions, their families, guidance counselors, stay away from this industry. It does not have a long-term future. And we have to fix those two things. Otherwise, we can't sustain the existing economy that we have. And cloud refers to all things digital. And the, the magical thing about cloud, or digital things, I should say, is that capital markets love digital. You just have to look at the stock values for these, these gigantic digital companies. And I remember a day when the oil industry was the t uh, technical industry. I mean, it was the industry that attracted everybody, had their pick a talent. Uh, if we can uh, in, use the talents of this industry to invest in digital, we can do all kinds of things at the same time. We can make capital turn around and go, wow, those guys are actually pretty high tech. Young people will say, wow, I could actually have a great career there. And if we do it carefully, we can use these same tools to both assist with decarbonization and with energy diversification, helping to make the existing industry more sustainable. So that's the, the inherent argument in the book. And it, what it tries to showcase, however, is that uh, the, the, the forces of change are asynchronous. In other words, technology is moving much further ahead and faster than people can embrace it. And so the, the story in the book, the real story in the book is how do we help companies accelerate their adoption so that they can catch up with the forces of technology change? Well, you've got a, a line in your uh, first chapter that really caught my attention because I spent five uh, years in the industry from 2003 to 2008, and I was helping Alberta-based technology companies open up the U.S. market. And I, I probably met with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of engineers over those five years, you know, oil and gas engineers and uh, structural civil engineers, those kind of folks. And you, you make the point that oil and gas is a cautious industry and risk averse. So can we infer from that, that right away, the oil and gas industry is handicapped in the transition to digital because it's not in the nature of that engineering culture to adopt new technologies rapidly the, the way it, at the pace that the technology is changing? Uh, yes, I think that is uh, at the very heart of the challenge of our industry. We have an education system that nurtures and grows talent to feed into the into the industry. We have standards bodies that set practices of performance, and we have engineering disciplines that uh, structurally are set up to make sure that this product, and we all, by the way, we all sure are grateful for this. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, it's not to dismiss it. None of us want uh, gas, uh, gasoline, diesel fuel spills, explosions, pipeline ruptures, these things are all really bad. So we're all very grateful that the industry does this. But the challenge is that these practices are off kilter with the pace of t technical change. And uh, uh, unfortunately, some of them are going to stay off kilter. They're, all, they're always going to be behind. In other words, one engineer said to me, you should not be bringing agile methods to develop a pressure vessel. Like we know how to build pressure vessels. We don't need to, we don't need to bring these clever tools to that. The challenge the industry faces though, is it brings the same method 
regardless of the problem it's trying to solve. And uh, sometimes these, these methods are getting in the way of progress. In other words, why should it take forever to do something like move a control room from one facility to another? Why is that a two-year project? One oil company moved their control room in two weeks during the pandemic because they had to. It was if the traditional models, well, no, that's a two-year project. Well, okay, so you know what? We need to we need to confront some of these deep-seated norms and path, patterns of thinking in the industry to uh, break some of the patterns of, of uh, work activity so that things can speed up. And uh, so, yes, there's no question there's a handicap, but I believe it's a self-inflicted handicap. The, the industry can move off of, of some of these practices. Another point that you make in chapter one is that one of the major changes recasting the industry is the shifting demand profile. And essentially, we're talking about peak oil demand here at some point. Uh, BP has already sa has said that we're already at peak oil demand. And I see a lot of people in the oil and gas industry kind of poo-pooing that idea and, and thinking that, you know, uh, rather than the uh, International Energy Agency's net zero by 2050 scenario where uh, oil demand drops from 100 million barrels a day that we have today uh, to 25 million barrels a day by 2050, many of them think that you know, more or less the existing demand is going to project out beyond 2050. And it, it, what's your take on that reluctance within the industry to grapple with, a, well, what is essential, a, a simple fact is that transportation makes up 60% of the demand for oil. Automakers are saying loud and clear to the industry, we prefer electricity over oil as a fuel for transportation. Yeah, it's a great challenge. Um, and uh, the reason I put that story at the front of the book was to illustrate how there is uh, there is definitely uncertainty. And in fact, if you read re down just below that quote in the book, I actually lay out all of the arguments that another oil company would come along and say, well, I, I hear you, but I don't believe you. Uh, I, I've got ample evidence that says demand continues to rise. Uh, the, the, the amount of time it'll take to replace all the cars in the road will take decades. They what we're always going to need paint and plastics and carpeting and all the stuff that um, that uh, crude oil uh, eventually turns into. Not to mention fertilizers and and you know <laughs> soon potentially rocket fuel. So there's lots of argument that says that um, that this is misplaced. Uh, but on the on the but my view is different in this. I believe the systemic shifts that are at this very very broad macro level, planet uh, uh, climate change, the the pressures from the EU and other economies. Uh, say that uh, the industry as a whole is on very shaky ground if it says the past is just going to be a continuation of the future and I can simply ignore it. Any, anybody else who's had that strategy of late has, has, has not worked out so well. Uh, Tesla, just as a really good example, in the space of um, its entire lifetime, 12 years, Tesla went from a poo-poo, you know, flaky dot-com entrepreneur with a cannabis habit uh, to the wealthiest man in the world. And his company is now worth as much as the next six automakers combined. Toyota says that Tesla has a six-year lead on them on vehicle electronics. How the heck did that happen? I mean, Toyota's been around for 70 years. How did a startup get that far ahead? So oil companies and energy companies that, that ignore this uh, shift uh, do so at their peril. And uh, so that's, I, I, I hear the argument and I totally respect it. If you've got a lot of resources in the ground, you've got to be thinking about your shareholder and the value that's there. But uh, the, the, these, these macro pressures look pretty compelling to me. 
Now, your second chapter is called the digital framework. So tell us about the, the digital framework and data and some of the, the new technologies that are set to transform oil and gas. Yeah, so the, the framework is a very simple way to, uh, to sketch out literally on the back of a napkin, uh, a way to think about how these digital tools interact with each other and how they create value. And the framework has three layers. So I think of it as like li literally three Lego bricks, if you like, or maybe a three layer cake. And uh, the middle layer is the tastiest part of this cake. <laughs> the middle layer has four elements. Data is the biggest element. Uh, this industry has discovered a bit through the pandemic uh, that uh, its information assets are actually some of its most important assets. So data, the Internet of Things, which is what generates all of this data, sensors on ca cameras, uh, gauges, etc., machine tools and artificial intelligence that interpret all this data that, that we have. And we need these tools because the tools of the past no longer can cope with the sheer volume we're talking about. And then automation, robots that actually act on that data. And I call this the middle layer of the cake. I, I like, this is where you, you create your signature way of doing work or your signature way of doing business. And every unit, every uh, department, every company combines its own data and sets of sensors and machine tools and automation to create its own special um, way of doing things and how it creates uh, unique value. That's layer one, meet in the middle. Juicy, tasty, and anybody can do it. Uh, layer below that is what I call the foundation of the cake. And in the foundation is cloud computing. If you're not doing cloud computing, you aren't even in this because you need cloud to process all the data and store it and uh, guide the robots and keep track of what they're doing. The layer below that is blockchain. Blockchain is what gives trust. It allows us to trust all of these elements, trust that the data is correct, trust that the sensor hasn't been corrupted, trust that the machine algorithm is working correctly, trust that the robot did what he said he was gonna do because you can, you, can, you can log the events on blockchain and then demonstrate that it, things actually worked. And beneath that is uh, foundational uh, gear like enterprise systems, cybersecurity networks, all the kind of plumbing you have to have to make um, your, your enterprise work. And that's, that's your, your foundation layer. And the third layer at the top, that's the people layer. This is where we create new capabilities to be able to cope with this, to, to, to figure out how we fix this offset between how fast the bottom two layers of this cake are changing and how we help people move faster to embrace change. And includes things like user experience and agile business methods and uh, change management and training and new skills and new talents and new organization models. That's what's at the top of the layer. So what you do is you sketch, as I say, you should be able to sketch this out on a napkin. That was my goal in this was to make this as simple for someone to digest as possible. No pun intended. Well, one of the things you've done that I really like is you have all of the various tech, uh, digital technologies on an S-curve. And uh, I use uh, the S-curve a lot in my, uh, in my journalism. And at the very top, you've got uh, enterprise technologies, which appears to be a fairly uh, mature set of technologies. And then at the bottom, you've got blockchain. And there are quite a few of these new technologies like autonomy and robots, industrial internet of things, uh, AI, that are really just getting past either approaching the, the inflection point on the curve or just past them. So there's still a lot of growth in the technologies and uh, adoption by the industry by the look of it. Exactly. Yeah, there's still tremendous upside. I tell young people today, you know, the uh, the the time to 
uh, th this is not the time to leave this industry because the these technologies themselves are all racing ahead in exponential ways, growing in, in terms of demand, and you have an industry that's behind. And so you have an in the, the, the demand for people, talent, and know-how around these technologies in the industry is, un is, is, is going to grow for as long as, long as you can imagine. And the capacity to cope with these tools will outstrip the uh, supply. So this is precisely the time to hitch yourself to one of these tools and then work your way through it uh, with the industry. The easiest ones that people are gravitating right now are data science, machine learning tools. They're, they're easy for engineers to adopt because in the engineering world, it's very math-centric anyway. So it's a, it's a, it's a fast path. The, the earlier argument you would have heard was, oh, well, I'll just go become a coder. Well, no, not everyone's going to become a coder. But for the, in the engineering world, which is uh, data-driven, math-driven, uh, uh, figuring out and learning how to use these newer uh, tools that, as I say, in the center of this cake, actually is uh, quite a reasonable and plausible thing to do. And those are the tools, as I say, it's, it's in the middle here that are the ones that are going to have the biggest effect on the industry in the short term. It's, it'll be things like machine tools and data, data science and data understanding. Well, I wrote a book in 2019 called The New Alberta Advantage Technology Policy and the Future of the Alberta of the Oil Sands. Yeah. And one of the things that became very clear, I heard it from uh, all of the big producers in Alberta, you know, like the Suncor, CNRL, Sonovus, Imperial Oil, is, is that in the future, as the energy transition progresses and climate policies become ever more stringent, is that oil has to become both cost and carbon competitiveness, competitive. And it seems to me that we are seeing already the, the oil companies thinking in terms of, uh, and you see this when, if you look at their investor presentations, they, they always have a slide or two about how they're adopting, you know, embracing digitalization. And they see that as a key, uh, key part of the pathway to bring their emissions down, whether it's net zero by 2050 or just a general sort of commitment to reduce emissions and to bring cost down. Because in this world of declining demand, demand destruction over, to, over the next 30 years, they, want to, they think that carbon is going to be priced. So they want need to be competitive there. And, and that'll be an important part of keeping their production costs down. Is that a fair take on this? Um, yes, that's completely fair. I, I believe in today, and I, I learned this, uh, gosh, I was at a session with, um, uh, was Peter Terzakian was presenting with uh, the Canadian Drillers Association, uh, and I was invited to attend. And uh, Peter, this was back in 2018, I think, maybe 2019. And Peter said, you cannot go to New York City now to look for money unless you have an, a clear answer to two questions. Number one, what are you doing about digital and technology change? It's disrupted all kinds of other industries. If you want us to lend you money, Mr. Oil Company, you need to tell us how you're coping with this uh, because we don't want to put our money at risk. We, we, we saw that. We watched that movie before. Don't like the outcome. So you better, you better have a story. And the second story was, what are you doing about uh, carbon and climate change, E of, of ESG, the environment? Uh, so uh, those those two things are what drive um, the the, uh, the the ability to secure funding to be able to pursue your business. Uh, the beautiful part about the tech digital side, not only does it uh, you know transform your company and industry, but it also has a ratchet effect on costs. Uh, the minimum cost takeout that I keep watching over and over again is twenty percent. 
20% out of each element of work in your entire value chain can be taken out if you use digital tools to look and stare hard at those costs and figure out how you can extract them. And it's even greater if you're starting from ground zero. In other words, a greenfield. You can, you can transform this industry or your, your play dramatically through these digital tools. Uh, so cost um, and um, the, the one you haven't touched on but is equally powerful is productivity. You can actually ratchet up the productivity dramatically. One oil company in Calgary uh, had um, the ratio of, of um, folks in the home office who dealt with um, uh, finance, compliance, billing, royalties, costs, all that sort of chase the money side of, of oil and gas. Uh, the productivity went from one professional per 125 wells to one professional per 500 wells through the use of these digital tools. That's a, almost a tripling of staff productivity. And that's, that was literally 2019, 2018, 2019 before the pandemic. So the, uh, it's not just cost, it's productivity, but also if you want to secure money, <laughs> to get anybody to lend you any money, you need to have answers to these questions. How are you going to, how you're going to cope with uh, digital and climate change? Just as an aside, I wrote my first uh, deep dive into uh, energy work uh, and art and was uh, the, the thesis of the piece in late 2017 was mm. that digital technologies were going to uh, transform uh, employment and uh, by boosting uh, productivity, uh, you'd be able to produce more oil and gas with fewer workers. And there were going to be, you know, the, the size of the oil and gas workforce was going to shrink and, and in fairly short order. And I can't tell you how many uh, people within the industry, including you know, plenty of uh, vice presidents and a few CEOs, absolutely ridiculed that argument. You know, this uh, was only five years ago. Yeah, and I would I would uh, point to the empty office towers in Calgary, um, and then look at the total production coming out of Alberta, and uh, what you'd see is the production hasn't gone down, uh, and uh, the we're constrained by our ability to do takeaway, and yet we have all of these empty office towers. So okay, please explain to me how the productivity of the industry did not go up <laughs> to a degree. Calgary is significantly overbuilt. Uh, because we, we have the, we're producing the same amount of product, uh, and yet we have empty seats. And uh, so the productivity of the industry absolutely has gone up and, and gone up dramatically. So I, I completely agree with you. The, in fact, in 2019, I had a conference organizer call me um, to say he wanted to bring his digital transformation conference to Calgary. And he called all the major oil players and said, this is what I want to do. And they all say, well, you don't need to do that. Our industry is 100% digital. We had nothing to learn from another conference. You should go take that conference someplace else. There's no demand for that here. This was in 2019, before the pandemic. I mean, this, this is what I say. The industry has some, some internal norms, some ways to think about it that, that uh, are, are now being cast into sharp relief relative to what's happened over the last three years, with uh, uh, two years with the, with the pandemic. Um, the, one executive said to me, the, the industry has uh, adopted 20 years of change in just 24 months. Well, let's talk about uh, change in business models, because this is really interesting to me, because uh, I wrote a piece for Alberta Views magazine about carbon management in Alberta, how that was becoming a, a, a way of thinking about oil and gas. And I, I interviewed a number of the, the companies, and what I was told is that of the four big companies I mentioned, uh, Suncor invests a lot in uh, low-carbon businesses. 
and and they you know they see that as an opportunity to diversify and and build revenue streams as perhaps you know oil demand declines on the other hand the other three big companies did not do that they put all of their r&d resources into you know either technology that will increase uh production uh you know lower costs or maybe it will reduce emissions or maybe it'll deal with a complex technical issue they've got like oil sands tailings ponds reclamation those sorts of things uh, but it seems like Suncor is the leader and the others have taken a different approach to this, you know, idea of business model transformation. What's your take on that? Well, I'm not really I'm super familiar with the the specifics of the Canadian producers, to be to be honest. Um, at the end of the day, the oil industry is a global industry. And while what happens in Canada may be important to Canadians, I also believe that we, because it's a global industry, we need to pay as much attention to forces outside of Canada. Um, it would sound sounds to me as if the 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 um, uh, Suncor is uh, somewhat subscribing to BP's thesis, which is we need to prepare more for, for the future, whereas the other players may be doubling down on the existing business model, maybe to extract a bit more value. So they may disagree on timeline, but they may be okay with general uh, direction and thrust. Um, so that's, that might be a, a way to think about it, I suppose. But uh, I would say that the um, uh, inside Canada, the Canadian economic structure makes it challenging for new business models to really take root. We are, uh, because of our regulatory frameworks, which we all, we all want and put into place to protect the environment and people, we have, we have stricter regulatory requirements, we have strict um, uh, processes we follow to get decisions taken, and other economies are a little more liberalized and a little more fast moving, a little more, a little more um, Silicon Valley-like, you know, take, take greater risks. And so many of these business models that I'm watching unfold are actually not, in, not made in Canada. They're, they're coming from, from beyond. So uh, perhaps down the road, we need to ask whether these newer business models are going to have an effect on Canada. But uh, I, I definitely look beyond, look beyond Canadian shores to see different business model solutions to, uh, that are emerging. You make a really important point uh, that I, I agree with, which is that the, the, biz, the new business models are not emerging from within oil and gas production, refining, distribution, but the supply chain of goods and services. Could you explain that? Well, the supply chain is more dynamic uh, in the sense that um, once, and I'll use an oil company, once you've, as an oil company, you've secured your resource, your principal valued asset on your balance sheet, it, it, the resource in the upstream world is the, is the underground resource. It's basically your unproduced inventory of product. And once you have that, much of the value of your company is, is, is baked. It, it's going to rise and fall with the price of the product. Once you get it to the surface, but the volume is largely baked, and uh, so the 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 incentive and the motivation to innovate actually is muted because at the end of the day, the challenge is how how fast you get it out of the ground. You go over to the supply chain side, though; it's a very different story. Like a, dr a drilling rig's maybe three years in the field, and then it's so beat up from the weather and hauling it around and and uh, banging away on, on it through the drill bit. You're going to have to replace that rig, and so because the capital cycle is shorter, in other words, your capital turns over more quickly, it creates the opportunity for the owner of that capital, the rig, to inject new digital smarts, new ways of thinking, new models. 
And so there's more dynamicism actually down in the supply chain side. And so that's why the I always frame in the in the in the book that the supply industry actually is highly highly innovative. And there are lots of studies out there that sh that show this uh, that um, the adoption the invention curve, if you like, the innovation curve in a big oil company is actually quite low. Uh, that much of that innovation is coming from outside, typically through their suppliers. And uh, so that's why so the advice to suppliers out there is you, you pay attention because your your business might be the one in the crosshairs, not the oil company. Well, we're getting close to the end of the, the interview, uh, Jeff, and I have to ask uh, this question because you talk about how the, uh, the culture within the, the producers uh, is risk averse, uh, change averse. And so that begs the question of leadership. How, where does the leadership come to create a, a culture that's more attuned to change, that'll adopt digital technologies, improve productivity, all the things we've, we've been talking about. And, and do you see a lot of that leadership within the industry or is there a paucity of leadership? Well, I actually closed the book off with nine case studies um, uh, that, that try to get exactly into this particular question. Where is the leadership? And are people in the industry actually taking a leadership role? And the book highlights the tactics that they've actually followed. So to the question, is there a shortage of leadership? Um, I, I'm not sure I would say there's a shortage. I'd say that there's a reluctance and confusion in the industry around what the future might actually look like. And if that then creates a barrier to embracing the change, then the case studies show how others have confronted that exact question, got beyond it, and are now moving forward. And hopefully the case studies will showcase um, how those leaders are uh, embracing change. Uh, the, the case studies, for instance, are everything from a service company who is wrestling with how do I transform my product for a digital age, uh, that cut, not a drill rig operator, but very similar uh, kind of scope of, of uh, capability, all the way down to a fully integrated global transnational. And how are they thinking about digital all the way through their, 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 their engine, how they set up to take advantage of it. And uh, so hopefully you, people can read this and go, okay, I can, I can pick and choose some ideas here and bring them to bear on, on my situation. Now, final question, uh, Jeff. Uh, I often get into trouble with uh, environment, environmentalists because I argue that there is a long-term future, and I mean beyond 2050, for the oil and gas industry, not in its current uh, configuration perhaps, but it seems to me that the... These kinds of, if you think of a company as an institution, it takes a long time to build these institutions, to build up expertise, to build up project management capacity, to build up, you know, balance sheets and access to credit and so on. And then in fact, oil and gas companies, if they can make the pivot from, from this old, you know, old style or, or the old model, business model to new business models, that they can be a, a force for, you know, uh, speeding up the energy transition, making it decarbonization, getting to net zero by 2050, all of the things that we, we think that, you know, agreed that we need to do. And digital seems, and digital and the culture around digital seems to be at the heart of that question. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, I think that's quite exactly right. Um, I, first of all, I don't believe, I, I believe the oil and gas industry will exist for a very long time and in some form. 
And, and one of the reasons for that is that, and people don't think about this, 85% of the world's oil and gas resources are held in countries that Westerners typically wouldn't want to go on vacation. So you kind of put that together and you realize, okay, there's a whole bunch of countries out there who are sitting on piles of the stuff. Um, what are they going to do? And uh, so uh, my hypothesis is they're going to continue on in some form or fashion um, because it's, uh, the product is simply too valuable to leave in the ground. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we need chemicals, we need paint, we need carpeting. There's hundreds of products out there that are, are uh, derived from the, pro the fossil fuel um, uh, crude oils and, and natural gas that we're, I think we're going to use. So I think the future is going to be, it's not clear what it's going to look like, but I don't believe it's dead-ended. Linda, which just comes to a halt somewhere. Um, so as for the, uh, as for the, the, the pressures to, um, uh, to consider how long that's going to take and, and, uh, should we somehow, um, uh, uh, how, how do we accelerate it? I, I continue to point to the, the, the one industry in my lifetime uh, which has systematically figured out ways to move exceptionally fast and do creative things that people love uh, that, that seem to, when they're aimed in the right way, create uh, value beyond comparison. And, and it's digital. And the fact that we are not yet pointing this capability at this industry says to me that there has to be a tremendous opportunity there for us to solve all of those agendas at the same time. Talent, uh, capital and money, um, our uh, and a carbon uh, economy. How do we how do we transform it and fix it? Well, Jeff, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating interview, and I and just uh, for our listeners, I want to uh, I rec highly recommend that you get Jeff's book. It's called Carbon Capital and the Cloud: A Playbook for Digital Oil and Gas. Jeff, where can they get it? It's available online only, and uh, but and then all of the usual places. So Apple iTunes has the uh, ebook version, and on on any of the Amazon platforms globally. Uh, if you're interested in buying a bunch of these for uh, a, um, a management team or a company, uh, your best move is to give me a shout because I can secure volume discounts for uh, for for bulky orders. But for, if you just want to buy it for yourself, Amazon would be your best bet. And uh, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, easiest is to just visit me online. Uh, my first name is Jeffrey with a G. Stands for salt of the earth, apparently, in old English. Uh, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-C-A-N-N dot -N com. Jeff, thank you very much. Really appreciate this. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>